They are wound up this morning. This morning's scripture, Romans the 14th chapter, the first nine verses. And for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The word of God. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would direct our thoughts and minds, that he would enable us to see your words in a new light, that you would convict us of any sins that we may have, Father, and lead us to repent. And we pray, Lord, that we may live our lives as reflections of your grace. And Father, I pray that you help me or aid me in sharing your word this morning, and that the words I speak be not of me, but be of you and glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we continue with our study that began last week, this same section And I didn't want to move on because I wanted to spend a little bit more time on this because I I think it's pretty important that we understand and get it right. Last week we saw that Paul had encouraged us to lighten up a little bit as Christians, but there were some caveats to it, and we looked at a few of those caveats, and we're going to continue to do that this morning as well. He basically addressed two separate types of Christians. There are two separate types of people, but there was a third type that wasn't addressed that we talked about last week that I don't think that we necessarily should leave out. But he specifically looked at two different groups, and both of these were Christians. And there were a lot of problems that they had at this time, and there are a lot of problems that we have 2,000 years later. And these words are very, and can be very encouraging to us and educational to us as a church and as a church as a whole all over the country and world for that matter. There were those who were strong in faith and those who were weak in their faith. And the whole idea of this is not to divide each other, not to cause divisions in the church. Those that were strong in the faith believed that they could eat any type of food, meat, you name it, drink wine, and that was perfectly fine. 
And yet those who were weak in the faith believed that they had to abstain from eating certain foods or drinking certain beverages such as wine. And it was sort of unique because when we think of a strong Christian, stereotypically we think of those who abstain from things, right? But Paul says that's not the case. It is the strong in the faith who do not abstain but partake of those things because after all, all things are from God, all things are good that are from God. But he also tells us, don't be divisive over those differences because both groups were eating and drinking or abstaining from eating and drinking and in so doing they were honoring the Lord. Now there is that third group that I mentioned last week that we cannot leave out because it's very important because you can take that and you can turn your Bible to Romans 14 and you can cite this passage as you can see there. I can drink whatever I want, anytime I want, eat whatever I want, anytime. I can do anything I want and I'm the strong one in the faith. That's not honoring the Lord. That's honoring your own gluttony, your own desires to build yourself up. That's that third group. They're not Christian. That group that thinks they can eat and drink and do whatever type of sinful activity in excess that they want to, those aren't Christian. Those that do it in honor of the Lord, whether it's eating and drinking or whether it's abstaining from eating and drinking, or doing it to honor the Lord. Those are the types of Christians that Paul's addressing here. And as I specifically mentioned last week, those that ate and drank, and those that abstained from eating and drinking, neither group group believed that by doing so or not doing so, they were saved. They knew that they were only saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So it did not matter what you ate or drank. It did not matter what you abstained from eating or drinking. Those activities were not going to save you. They were not going to add anything to your salvation. And that's an important distinction. Because as I mentioned last week, we're going through Lent. And you have to be careful. And if you do fast from whatever it is you fast from, you're not doing it to gain anything to your salvation. Because then it becomes a works righteous salvation. Faith is the only thing that saves you. The abstaining from eating or drinking is part of the process of becoming closer with God during this period of time. And that should be honoring unto the Lord. So there's dangers to this. So when we look at this, there may be some of you who say, this is actually kind of silly, right? We're talking about eating food and drinking beverage. What, what, what's the big deal here? And, and to that, I have two points. First, eating and drinking was a big deal to the Jews. It was a big deal to the Jews. You put a piece of bacon in front of them and they're going to run. And because that was the Old Testament commands, you could not eat of certain meats, nor could you drink certain beverages at certain times. And they took that seriously. It was a big deal. Furthermore, how many churches split and divide over novel things, right? You see a church that just blows up. More times than not, it's over something that at its root is very 
silly. Way more times they split and divide over silly things than they do over theological foundational issues. Because we care more about the color of the curtains than we do about salvation by faith alone, unfortunately. Right? So we have to be careful and we have to look at this and see what it can teach us so that we don't let things like this divide us as a church, not only as an individual church, but as a church as a whole. So Paul is giving us some advice on how to set aside the the petty differences, those that really don't make a difference in eternal life and not have any eternal ramifications because of that. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. As for the one who abstains, welcome him. But don't welcome him to quarrel over opinions. Hmm. Have you ever baited somebody? I must confess I'm guilty. You ever send out a, a salvo or say something that you know is going to invite a dispute, right? Because in your mind, you know where they're at. And so you're welcoming, welcoming this quarrel. Sort of like the baptism issue that I went over with last week. You know, you get a good Baptist and say, mm, how about we just sprinkle you say it knowing that they're going to come back and then you got a quarrel and then the fight's on. Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. You know that you've got differences. You're both glorifying God and being baptized. Don't invite people or welcome people just to have a dispute with them. Or better yet, don't welcome or invite people just to try to prove you're right and they're wrong. Right? We do that, believe it or not. That happens. Sometimes you just want to be right so bad, you fire out those little barbed comments and just sit back and lick your chops, so to speak. But Paul tells us to welcome each other, irrespective of whether they are weak or strong or you believe they're weak or strong or whatever the case may be. Welcome them genuinely out of a loving desire from the heart. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. I want to spend a little bit more time on this because I think it's of critical importance to the church today. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats and then verse 4 who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another oh how the world loves this passage and oh how the world loves Matthew 7 when Jesus says judge not what lest ye be judged you worry about the speck in someone else's eye when you yourself have the plank in your own eye We have allowed the world to take these passages and shove them down our throats to where we are afraid to judge anything. 
For some reason, we've allowed the world, and we do this so often, the world will take something that is ours as Christians, as the church, redefine it and shove it back in our face, and then we all of a sudden get scared. And what is it we say? I'm not judging you, but... Or the inverse, don't judge me. And we allow the world to steal those things. And this is another example. Whenever the world uses that, don't judge me. It's simply a way of saying, I'm going to sin, but it's not up to you to tell me what's right or wrong. That simply can't be the case. That simply cannot be the case. When we judge something or some action, we take those actions and we try to hold them up to an objective standard of right or wrong. And this, I will submit to you, is the objective standard of what's right or wrong. We have to judge actions. It's what we do every day. We make determinations of what is right or wrong whether we do it or whether we see it. So this idea that we should not judge anything is a fallacy. And it's merely a way of trying to back the church into a corner of saying, it's okay. It's between you and God. Everything goes, so to speak. It's a license and an opportunity to throw out God's objective standard and Sin's only sin between you and God. It's not a sin to me, necessarily. We're really saying that there is no objective standard of right or wrong. And then when there is no objective standard of right or wrong, then anything's permissible, right? Anything. Because it's all subjective. We have a collective duty... We have an individual duty and we have a collective duty as a church to reflect Christ, to reflect God's commands to the best of our ability and in the best way that we possibly can. And if we don't judge what is right or wrong, then we simply cannot do that. At the same time, and this is critically important to that, At the same time, we have to continually self-reflect our own lives. And I think this sometimes can be the problem. We have to reflect on our own actions and our own sinfulness and what we're doing about that. Jesus' statement in Matthew 7 when he says, Judge not lest you be judged why you worry about the speck in someone else's eye when you have the lump in your own eye. He was dealing with hypocrites. He was dealing with hypocritical type activity. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek base word, kritiki, which means critic. And you know that actors have critics. And so a hypocrite was someone who played or acted in a play as someone different than they really were. So in the Christian sense, a true hypocrite is someone who is totally who portrays themselves as totally different than they really are. So if I portray myself as not having a log in my eye and let me get out there, I got plenty of logs in my eyes. 
Okay? But if I portray myself as not having a log in my eye, then I can't point out someone else's speck. But if I confess that log and I fight that log and I try to repent from that every day of my life, then it's my duty and obligation to say, that's sinful. The same as what I'm doing is sinful, but I'm in the battle. I'm in the fight. But if I know there's a log in my eye and I embrace that log and I say, that's okay, I'm just going to act like it's not there, then we've got problems. And those are the types of people that Jesus was warning about in Matthew 7. The true hypocrite. Those who never acknowledge that they have anything sinful in their lives, but always want to point out sinfulness in others' lives. That's the danger. The world will call us that no matter what. They don't understand what true hypocrisy means. They don't understand that a true Christian is constantly battling sin, that it's a fight every day of our lives, and that fight never ends on this side of life. But we can't do anything about that. We just have to be honest with ourselves and be ready and willing to admit, hey, look, I fight sin every day. Some battles I win, some battles I lose, but I'm fighting. And I'm not going to embrace it and ultimately give in to it. You know, so often it is much easier to see other sin than it is our own. We sometimes like what we see in the mirror in our version of ourselves, and we have to guard against that. We have to be careful about that. We have to take the time to self-reflect and to be honest in our assessment of our own lives and our own walk with Christ and the own, our own planks that are in our eyes. And it is whenever we lose sight of that that we run into trouble and hypocrisy tends to rear its ugly head. That's why it's so important that we confess and repent. Confess and repent. And that should always be a part of our lives. But here Paul's telling us not to judge each other with things such as eating and drinking wine, eating meat and drinking wine. Now, it's a little bit different. These are not sinful activities. And that's one of the reasons why he says that. Eating this meat and drinking this wine is not a sinful activity whatsoever. So it's not a situation where someone is engaging in sin and they run the risk of being dragged into sin to the point where they walk away and prove themselves not to ever have been saved at all. Because that's ultimately what happens. If we engage in sin and we continue to engage in sin and we don't repent, then at the end of all this, we prove that we were really never his. That it was all just a, a farce, so to speak. No, these folks are eating and drinking in the glory of God. To honor God in all they do. So if we judge them and tell them they're wrong, then it, as we talked about last week, you run the risk of doing damage to their faith. Because they truly believe that what they're doing is glorifying God. As, you know, those of you that are practicing fasting during Lent, you truly believe in your heart, I hope that you do, that what you're doing is glorifying God and, and trying to bring yourself closer to Him. And yet there are those who aren't doing that, and don't see a need to do that, and hopefully they're glorifying God in the same way. Don't tell those that are that they're doing something wrong. Verse 5, one person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
So here we have days of the week talked about. There are those who refuse to partake in certain Christian holidays. There are Christians that refuse to partake in certain Christian holidays. They won't celebrate Christmas. They won't celebrate Easter because they will tell you that it has ties to pagan tradition and they don't participate in any of those types of activities. And they're right. It has ties to pagan traditions. So are they wrong and those that celebrate right or vice versa? What's the litmus test in this? Do we glorify God by participating in Christmas and Easter and celebrating other Christian holidays? Do they glorify God in abstaining from celebrating those holidays? And as long as both sides are glorifying God, that's perfectly fine. But man, it causes a great deal of division within churches, right? You get somebody that says, I don't celebrate Christmas because of the pagan traditions that were, went on way back when it began. And it just infuriates those that do celebrate. And vice versa. If you have a group that don't celebrate and say, I'm going to celebrate Christmas, it infuriates each other and churches can split and divide over those issues. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Those types of activities, everybody's Christian, everybody's trying to honor God. Look beyond that and glorify God in whatever you do. Those disputes can have profound impacts on a church. Just make certain that however the celebration is, that those celebrations are done to honor and glorify, glorify God. The days of the week, in particular, in particular the day that we worship God, has been a difficult subject or a divisive subject since the beginning of the church. And it's been one that's caused a great deal of consternation to theologians as well as different denominations throughout time the week has seven days in it right anybody know where the seven day week came from genesis 2 2 i find that to be pretty cool myself the world the unbelieving world out there will tell you and stand on the fact that there's seven days in a week well where does that come from all the way back genesis 2 2 God created the world in sixth and rested on the seventh. And it still hasn't changed and it never will change. But that's a side note. So he created everything in six days, rested on the seventh. And then in Exodus 20, he commanded that we mimic his creation of the world by working for six days and resting on the seventh day. That seventh day is known as what? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. So, the Jews traditionally celebrated the Sabbath on what day of the week? Saturday. That is the seventh day. Jesus came and here comes the issue, coming back up, right? Matter of fact, he was accused of violating the Sabbath multiple times. You recall when he and the apostles were walking through the wheat, they were hungry They were picking the heads off the wheat and they were eating and the Pharisees accused them of working on the Sabbath. Then he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And again, he was accused of violating that Sabbath law. But in reality, 
Jesus was working every day figuratively. And I'll, I'll explain to you what I mean. Just like God the Father worked for six days and on the seventh he rested. And then all creation fell. And so then comes Christ and he begins working to restore creation. And then all the time he spent on earth, every single day that he was here, was done in order to restore creation to its original intent. His work was not completed until when? The resurrection. And that resurrection was when? Sunday. So ergo, Jesus worked the six days, the seven days, and then was resurrected on Sunday. And it was that day that he was able to rest. It was that day when it was finished and he had no more work to do that mankind had finally, once and for all, been redeemed. And that is why we worship on Sundays. Because Christ arose from the dead on Sunday and his work was completed on Sunday. He was able to rest on Sunday. So you have the picture of the old covenant that worshiped on Saturday because God rested on Saturday. You have the picture of the new covenant that worships on Sunday because Jesus rested on Sunday. So what do we do? We've got Seventh-day Adventists. Anyone here of that denomination? And there are many others, but the Seventh-day Adventist, the entire denomination is built around this argument that I just gave you. There is one day to worship, and that day to worship is the Sabbath, and that's on a Saturday. Saturday. So what are we to do with that? Tell them they're wrong, and allow them to tell us we're wrong, and then we just part ways because we can't get along. Same type of situation. They believe that they're glorifying God in what they do, just as we believe we're honoring and glorifying God in what we do. Now, I am convinced in my mind, and we're going to get to what that means, that we're right, but that's okay. That doesn't mean that we have to be divisive over the issue, and we can't call them, unless there are other theological issues, if they believe they're saved by something other or in addition to the cross... And faith, then I got problems, right? Then I've got problems. But as long as we can maintain that we're saved by faith in Jesus, and that's it, we can call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ and put away the differences and move on and love each other accordingly. Now, we move on. To the bottom part, or the second part of this verse, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What exactly is Paul talking about there? What does he mean? And I think Piper does a good job in his examination of this. Paul is not saying we shouldn't have an opinion about a matter, okay? It's easy not to, to start a dispute when you have no opinion about a matter. If you want to discuss with me when I believe Christ is going to return, I'm not going to have a dispute with you over that because i got no idea. That's easy. I'm not going to argue over something that I've got no idea about, right? But that's not what Paul's saying. He's telling us, you should be convinced in your own mind. So he's saying, don't be ignorant about it or don't just say, eh, I don't know. I'm not going to argue with you because I don't know. That's not what he's telling us here. 
He's telling us that we should have a conviction about whatever it is that is right or wrong. But he's saying, don't quarrel or argue over those things. In fact, he's saying we should be convinced in our own minds. Sort of like I said about the Seventh-day Adventist. I'm convinced that Sunday is the day that we should worship as Christians. So I think there's some filters that we have to go through when we ask ourselves this. Number one is, is it sinful? Is whatever that I'm battling in my mind, is it a sinful activity? If it is, it drops out. If it is, it drops out. If it is, I judge that as sin and I do not agree with whatever it is. Number two is, does it honor Christ? Even though it's not sinful, it can still not honor Christ and honor myself. If I'm doing it to glorify myself or honor myself, it's wrong. And I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. And I shouldn't hold on to whatever conviction that it is. And finally, is it the best way for me to act in the situation? So, is it sinful? Is it a sinful activity? You know, I I told you about that third group that we... Paul doesn't address here that we had to address those that think that I can engage in whatever I want and that just means I'm strong in my faith there's a lot of sinful activity so it falls by the by the wayside and is it honoring to Christ and I think that's probably well I think it's probably the second important question to ask does it honor Christ if I'm eating and drinking and I'm doing so just for my own indulgence not honoring Christ with it If I'm not giving him thanks and giving him glory for providing me with the food as nourishment and the drink as well, then it's just wrong, plain and simple. Or am I abstaining from doing those things just to honorify, honorify, that's a good word, write that down, just to glorify and honor, that was the combination, Christ. If I am, fine, if I'm doing it, to draw attention to myself, then I'm doing it to honor and glorify myself. And I think that's very important. Finally, do I believe that this is the best way for me to proceed in the situation given the circumstances? If so, then you are fully convinced in your own mind. And being fully convinced in our own mind, then we shouldn't be divisive over, the, over those types of arguments. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So basically Paul is saying here that our lives should be lived in a manner that glorifies who? God if we're living or if we're dying or dead we should be glorifying God in all that we do it's like 1 Corinthians 10 31 whether we eat or drink or whatever we do we should glorify God in doing that so then whether we live or whether we die we are the Lord's 
And then verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. That he might be the Lord of our entire existence. That he would be the one most treasured in life on earth and life eternal. And so we see transition here to Jesus. He died, he lived and died and lived again that we, we may live and die and live again. Thus our lives in every aspect should be lived in such a way that we honor and glorify him. And I think when we take that perspective, it becomes rather clear about the initial commandment not to engage in petty disputes. Because anytime we're doing that, Anytime we're not trying to correct a serious issue that is in the church, and there are those that are in the church and the church in general that need to be addressed. And I think when we ignore them, we don't do what God's asked us to do. But when we engage in the petty types of disputes, then we're only honoring our own pride and we're only trying to prove we are right for no other reason than to build ourselves up. And that's something that we shouldn't do. Our lives should mimic Christ and be glorifying unto him in all that we do. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these difficult passages. But Lord, we're very thankful that you give us these words so that we know how we are supposed to live our lives. Father, we just ask for your help because pride can be a a difficult obstacle to our walk as Christians, perhaps the most difficult. And Lord, help us to love each other as Christians. Help us to love each other purely and not want to engage in petty disputes, but at the same time be willing to judge what is right and wrong and to be able to um, repent of our own sins and help others in that same endeavor, Father, because we know that Sin should not be a part of the church, not be embraced by the church, even though we're all sinners. We should all be fighting that. We should all be turning from the sin individually and collectively and running toward you as fast as we possibly can. But Father, we pray that you help us to have wisdom to know what are things to judge and things not to judge. And sometimes that line can be so very difficult for us to be able to discern. And we just pray for the leading of your spirit as we go about serving you as individuals and as a church. We thank you, Father, for your spirit and all the wisdom he gives us each and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All rise.